This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. It's a good song by the police, and also something we do tend to remember each July. The fact that steps were indeed taken on the moon by U.S. astronauts starting in July of 1969. Five subsequent Apollo missions would also place a duo onto the lunar surface. Many people, this correspondent among them, rejoice in what a magnificent technical and scientific achievement Apollo was. The first and still only time humans have visited another world. Our astronauts returned over 800 pounds of rock specimens. The bulk of that collection came not from men in spacesuits huffing and puffing while lugging rocks back to their landers, but rather from the contribution of a special spacecraft, the moon car. Few people have fully considered the contribution made to our knowledge of the moon and solar system derived from the three lunar rovers, which drove something like 56 miles across an alien landscape. But we may happily report that this facet of the Apollo missions is overlooked no longer. The matter has been taken up by our guest today, New York Times bestselling author Earl Swift. In his new book, Across the Airless Wilds, subtitled The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings, Mr. Swift outlines the remarkable tale of a spacecraft with wheels, made from scratch through clever engineering and a lot of trial and error. Earl Swift's prior efforts include writing about changing landscapes, automobiles, and highway engineering, so it would seem that he might be just the man to unspool this remarkable tale of how we drove about on the moon. We certainly think it's a tale worth hearing, and to hear more about it, we're pleased to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Earl Swift. Doug, thank you so much for having me. Well, I confess, Earl, to being one of those people who didn't maybe fully appreciate what a difference a mobile platform made to those Apollo missions. Um, uh, well, what got you interested in writing about these moon buggies? Well, I turned 13 the day that Apollo 15 landed on the moon in July of 1971. It'll be 50 years ago next Saturday. And I don't remember much about the, the missions that came before. Most of the later Apollo missions have dimmed in the shadow cast by Apollo 11, the first landing. But I have no recollection of Apollo 11. I wasn't allowed to stay up late enough to watch it. We lived in England at the time. With the time change, it was like 4 in the morning when those guys came down out of the, uh, the lunar module. But I do remember 15, 16, and 17, the last three. And part of it is that I was a teenager. As I said, I turned 13. And so I had a little bit more awareness of the world around me. And part of it was that we had moved to Houston, and everything Apollo was inescapable there. Uh, but mostly it was that the astronauts brought a new piece of gear with them, uh, which seemed <laughs> both ridiculous and fantastic at the time to the 13-year-old me, and that was that they, they drove, they had a car. <laughs> and, uh, and I remembered that very clearly, and that stayed with me since. Well, I couldn't resist slapping that term moon buggy out there because the press loved to slap it onto those rovers back in the 70s. But as one engineer pointed out to you, those things were genuine spacecraft. 
Oh, they were. And, of course, Moon Buggy was just, it was easy to, it was irresistible <laughs> because it rhymed with Dune Buggy, which, you know, was very much front and center of people's minds at the time. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this was unlike anything that ever operated on Earth, the most carefully engineered vehicle in history by far. Just remarkable in, in how little of it there was. Well, we need to talk, I think, about the most famous person discussed in your book, Werner von Braun. But before we do that, can you detail the input of a man who is definitely not a household name, Greg Becker? He's a man whose contribution is, was, was really not well known, I think, until you've written this book. M.G. Greg Becker was a, a Polish refugee from World War II. Came uh, initially to Canada, worked for the Canadian military for several years, then uh, was hired as a civilian by the U.S. Army to study mostly how to improve uh, terrestrial traction uh, for military vehicles, it's predominantly tanks. And he worked at the Detroit Arsenal in uh, doing that uh, and uh, eventually got a job offer from General Motors, which was starting a defense research lab in Santa Barbara, California, and, uh, and became the chief scientist for that lab. And, and Becker invented the engineering discipline of paramechanics, which studies the, the relationship between vehicles and the land, the ground on which they travel. Right. And it may seem a really arcane sort of specialty. But if you've ever been mudding in a Jeep or, or raced motocross or ridden a mountain bike, you owe something of that experience to Greg Becker. Uh, you know, tire treads, the design of Caterpillar tractor treads, uh, pretty much every, every mode of operation, every mode of travel on land, off-road, has been informed by him. I have to admit, I'd never given it a thought till reading this book about how important it is to, to check out that interface between, you know, what you're rolling on and what, you, you know, what you're rolling over. Yeah, well, it was particularly important in the early days of the space program. A lunar program was just kind of a distant, hazy aspiration. We're talking late 50s, very early 60s. It was important because no one knew what the moon's surface was like. And so Becker launched some of the earliest studies into uh, using what he thought that surface might be like and to... You know, what sort of vehicle might best be able to negotiate the lunar terrain? He was doing it way ahead of anybody else. Well, let's do Werner von Braun, rocket pioneer, first uh, first as weapons in Germany, then as a means of space travel after he got to the U.S. He got a surprising amount of help in promoting his ideas from Collier's Magazine, then Walt Disney. Can you talk about his success in public relations? Werner von Braun was... <laughs> He's a problematic character in American history because he was a Nazi and a former SS officer, and he was likely complicit in thousands of deaths of uh, concentration camp uh, prisoners who were used as forced labor in building the missile he designed for, for the Reich, which was the V-2, the world's first ballistic missile, uh, a weapon designed to kill allies, including us. He was spirited out of the country at the end of World War II by the U.S. military set up first at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, then moved eventually to Huntsville, Alabama, to the Redstone Arsenal to continue developing ballistic missiles. Our early missile program really rested on his shoulders and, and those of the 100-plus uh, German engineers he brought over with him. He champed from early in his career to get beyond missile construction and to build spaceships. That was his stated first interest from boyhood. He started working on a freelance basis on the side as, as giving speeches on space travel, on the inevitability of, of America's entry into space, and uh, eventually attracted the attention of an editor for Collier's magazine, Cornelius Ryan, who later wrote The Longest Day. 
Collier's was a was a very well respected news magazine of the day with millions of readers. And Von Braun became part of a a group of scientists and engineers who were tapped by the magazine to put together this huge package of stories on we will enter space soon. Mm-hmm. Was kind of the the theme of the whole thing. And his pieces were about what the first moon mission would be like. It was very accurate in some respects. It was a little bit off the mark in others. But for 1952, it was remarkable. And in it, he laid out the front and center importance of moon mobility, of having a vehicle to move astronauts from point A to point B. And I think he rightly surmised that getting around on the moon without that would be really, really difficult. Those stories created a, a lot of public interest. They started to make Von Braun uh, a public figure. But then in 1955, the, that transformation was complete, and he became a household name thanks to Walt Disney, who who recruited him to uh, appear on two episodes of his Disneyland show. And, uh, and Von Braun, using models, speaking in a very clipped, nasal German accent that just <laughs> telegraphed expertise, uh, <laughs> laid out how, uh, how we would get to the moon and, uh, and what kinds of rockets we'd use. And it was far, far-sighted stuff. And by the end of those, those shows, he was, he was the man who would get us to, to space. Well, I can verify, having watched Von Braun, uh, I, 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 not 1955, but I'm sure, he, I'm sure he was on again and again on Disney, that he certainly turned my head. He was a little kid. And I like the way you phrased um, the results of that Collier's article in your book, said, and just like that, fantasy became the future and Von Braun became its face. Yeah, he really did. He became the, the quintessential rocket scientist in the American public's mind, I think. Uh, although he was not a scientist, he was an engineer. That impression was accurate because he and his German engineers at Huntsville, uh, assisted by a, uh, a growingly capable group of American engineers, built all the rockets that got us there. You know, Alan Shepard went up on a Redstone missile mm-hmm. you know, with his capsule in place of what would have been a, a warhead. <laughs> but the, the later rockets, the Saturn I, the Saturn IB, and the Saturn V were all tailor-made just for space tra- travel, and Von Braun was the conceptual father of all of them. You even raised the question in the book of whether the, the dawn of the space age is not really the launch of Sputnik in 57, but, but the date of the Collier's Magazine article about Von Braun. Yeah, that's my take on it. I was astounded by the breadth of the series and just how serious it was. Americans were used to, at that point, reading science fiction stories about space travel. We'd had science fiction stories for a couple of generations at that point, but I don't think that that many Americans were expecting to see a serious magazine like Collier's presented in nonfiction terms. This sort of futuristic writing was was something new, and it was incredibly exciting. It's exciting even now to read it, which says something about how how effective it was. Well, there's a third key figure in your narrative about uh, the Lunar Rovers, Frank Pavlix. He assisted Greg Becker. It's uh, it is curious to note that three of the key engineering figures in the saga were a one-time Nazi, von Braun, a Pole who fled the German and Russian invasion of Poland, Becker, and Pavlix, who was a Hungarian who fled the Soviet op- occupation. It's sort of like the Manhattan Project. Uh, going to the moon involved a lot of top-notch talent from Europe. Absolutely. Well, the entire space program was built on the shoulders of immigrants and first-generation Americans to a large extent. We're a country that relies on that outside brain power. <laughs> the Apollo program employed 400,000 people. A lot of them had been born elsewhere. Now, Frank Pavlix, Ference Pavlix, Frank to his American friends, was hired by Greg Becker within days of arriving in, in the U.S. and went with Becker 
first to the Detroit Arsenal. He was hired for the Detroit Arsenal, and then when Becker uh, took the job with General Motors, it was with the proviso that that Pavlik's come with him. He was Becker's right-hand man. And so you have Becker, the, the scientist, and Pavlik, the ace engineer, working together, not funded by the government, just early studies into how we might get from point A to point B on the moon, using all sorts of stuff, uh, you know, really finely ground volcanic rock as an analog for what they thought the lunar surface might be like. They, they came up with all sorts of different designs for vehicles based on how that surface actually turned out to be. Because remember, you know, the only thing that we knew about the moon when John F. Kennedy uttered his famous challenge, to, you know, that by the end of the decade we should strive to put a man on, on the moon and return him safely to the Earth, the only thing we knew about the moon was what we could see through a telescope, mm-hmm. which wasn't a whole lot. We had put nothing on the surface that told us anything about what we'd actually find there. It wasn't until 1964 that that changed. So a lot of this really early work was speculative sure. in, in nature, including everything that Becker and Pavlik did. As it turned out, they were, they were right on the money. They rightly foresaw pretty much what we found. Well, before we leave that topic about looking forward from like the 1950s, there's a bit of, I think, comedy in your book uh, describing some of the proposed means of travel that were put out for going on the moon. Uh, can you talk about the proposal for an oddly shaped craft that was supposed to leap about on the lunar surface? Herman Oberth, who was one of Werner von Braun's mentors, in 1959 published a book called The Moon Car. He was well in the middle age at that point, and he he had grown increasingly cranky and eccentric with the passage of the years. He was one of the world's foremost rocket authorities early in his career. Mm -hmm. But he published this book in which he proposed a a moon vehicle that was shaped like an enormous Tootsie Pop. It had this (laughs) spherical cabin at the end of a 40-foot leg that was had a tank tread on the bottom of it. And this, this leg could be extended to as, as high as 60 feet. This thing could just be this giant swaying dandelion of a, a lunar rover going over the surface. And it could go, go over the surface, O'Bearf claimed, at, at something like 95 miles per hour. There were nuttier ideas, but that one was, was pretty out there. And he was, he was deadly serious. He wasn't pulling anyone's leg. The book is Across the Airless Wilds, subtitled The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. We are speaking with its author, Earl Swift. Well, it was instead, rather than a Tootsie Pop, it was wheels that finally uh, got onto the moon on a rover. It's safe to say the astronauts did not run on big O tires, and where the non-rubber met the non-road involved some pretty remarkable engineering. Can you talk a little bit about some of the innovations that were needed for the wheels and tires? Well, of course, in the early going, I wasn't sure that, you know, that there was no consensus that wheels were the way to go. And it was Greg Becker who was way out ahead of everybody else in that department. A lot of companies started to experiment with, with rover models uh, as the surveyor probe uh, program began. And that was 1960-61-62. It was programmed to put a, a lander, soft land a lander on the moon just to check out future Apollo landing sites. A lot of companies that were gunning for a contract for, for a rover aboard surveyor, the bulk of them were, were very insect-like. They had segmented legs and they crawled around the surface. A few of them had caterpillar tracks. Becker, Becker was one of the few who was advocating wheels, but he had come to the conclusion that based on certainty that there was no water on the moon and therefore no mud, and thus Anything that a rover encountered would be granular in nature. That wheels were the way to go. That, that a caterpillar track offered advantages 
but that its weight was and complexity, you know, were both such burdens. They didn't justify the margin of improved performance over the wheel. So he was he was a wheel a wheel advocate. Now it was clear that a rubber air filled wheel would not work. First of all, this is a very, very hostile environment. You have extremes of temperature of plus or minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit. You've got a constant bombardment of cosmic radiation, which you can bet would have a bad effect on rubber. You also have a constant rain of micrometeorites, which you know are as small as a grain of sand, but they're moving faster than bullets, and they're going to leave a mark. You've got a lot of things to contend with, and a, an earth tire as we know it would not work. So the challenge became, okay, what can we make a wheel out of that will act like a pneumatic tire, that will offer a fairly comfortable ride, good traction, will absorb impact, but won't be air-filled, won't be made of rubber. That led General Motors to, to look at a, uh, a number of metal wheels. As it turned out, pretty much all of the competitors for the rover eventually went to metal wheels of various sorts. General Motors fastened onto the idea of wire mesh, crisscrossing wires. They used it on a number of their early rover proposals, and it seemed to work pretty well. Another company that was in the hunt for the rover contract was Bendix out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Bendix favored a wheel that looked like something off of a buckboard in an old west set. It was a pretty primitive-looking titanium and aluminum construction. It had no mesh. It just uh, had a band of titanium around uh, coils of, of titanium, and it wasn't really attractive, but it worked. And then Grumman in Long Island, New York, came up with a, a wheel that looked like a flower pot turned on its side and worked really, really well. Mm-hmm. But it made NASA a bit nervous because it was made of fiberglass. We're speaking with author Earl Swift about his most fascinating book, Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. Well, I was surprised in reading your book, Earl, to find out that Armstrong and Aldrin, their treks would easily fit within a football field. And that when Apollo 14's Alan Shepard, Edgar Mitchell tried to hike over to a crater, they, they couldn't find it. They were, they were disoriented. They got exhausted. Uh, having a car was a really good thing for these guys. Watching footage of Aldrin and Armstrong bunny hopping around in their spacesuits, easy to think that they're having a lot of fun. It looks like fun. But in fact, it was a lot of work. Imagine wearing a dozen raincoats, one over the other, and then having that heavy, unyielding garment pumped full of air to the stiffness of an all-season radial. That's pretty much what they were wearing. It, and, and, you know, just to bend your arm against that requires real, real muscle. To close your fist around a tool, exhaust your hands in minutes. And so just from a physical standpoint, movement was, was limited. And uh, in the case of, of Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell and Apollo 14, the assignment was pretty simple. Walk a half mile to a crater that's a 1,000 feet wide and sample rocks around its rim. But as you say, they, they couldn't find the crater. They knew exactly where it was. They thought they were walking right to it. But the moon, the moon is, is tricky. You know, The sky is completely black. Uh, there's, because there's no atmosphere, there's no haze that comes with distance. So something that's a long way off is as clear and sharp as if it were right next to you. Uh, added to that, there there are no visual yardsticks with you know that we don't even think about in the course of going about our days that help us measure distance. There are no trees, there are no clouds, there are no telephone poles, houses, any of those visual measurements. And and so a crater that looks small 
and uh, close by could be really big and a long way off. You can't tell. And same with boulders. So these guys set off for this crater and within minutes uh, lost all track of how far they'd walked, uh, how far things that they could see were from them, which led them to misjudge where they were, and they, they never did find the, the cone crater. They came within 65 feet of it and never <laughs> oh knew it. God. It threw a lot of challenges at an astronaut on foot. Shepard and Mitchell, in the course of, of walking that half-mile of the cone crater, probably covered close to two miles. If you were to look at the, the track of their travels, it looked like billies on the family circus cartoons. You know, they were curly queuing their way all over the lunar surface. But the rover, by contrast, on its first drive on Apollo 15, covered 6.3 miles, uh, which was more than all of the distance traveled by the three previous landings. Dave Scott and Jim Irwin knew where they were every second. Yeah, in an era of GPS, we sort of take for granted that, you know, if you're in your car, you can tell where you are if you want to. But 50 years ago, there was no way of knowing where something was. But these rovers were able to keep track of where they'd gone, which really reduced that possibility of getting getting lost. Yeah, they sure did. I mean, the rover offered a lot of advantages. And, of course, the obvious one is that you're not going through the physical exertion of trying to move from point A to point B. And, and that's important not only because it tires you out, but because as you work against this spacesuit to walk, your metabolic rate increases. And with that, you use more of the air and the cooling water in your backpack. Sure. So not only does it, are you limited physically just in distance, but you're limited in time because the effort of covering that distance cuts into the time you can spend outside. And so the rover allows you to, you know, you step in and you ride. It was a handful to drive. Make no mistake about that. It was not an easy vehicle to control. But it was a heck of a lot easier than walking. You'd get out a couple of miles to your first scientific stop, climb off, and your metabolic rate might increase slightly while you're working, doing your science. But then you get a cool-down period when you get back on the rover and go to the next stop. So not only did it greatly increase their range, but it vastly increased the time they had to spend outside by, by 50%. The navigation system that they relied on the engineers had to be pretty creative in how they, they built the thing because there's no magnetic field on the moon. You can't use a compass to, to judge direction. So they came up with a bone-simple idea, which was you take a directional gyro, and all it does is measure what direction the nose is pointed in. And you marry it to the odometer, the odometers in the, in the rover's four wheels. And by combining those two things, you can tell, you can decide if you know the point of where the where the trip starts, the point of origin, you have to you have to know where that is, and it's always next to the lunar module. Mm-hmm. And of course, they knew where that was, both the astronauts and mission control. If you know that, then you can measure how far you go in any one distance and for how long, and therefore keep track of of where you are on the surface. And it worked so well that mission control was was able to keep exact track of where they were. And there were times when the astronauts, for instance, thought they were coming up to the peak of a mountain or a, a tall rim around a crater, and mission control was able to tell them, no, no, you're not there yet. You know, you've got another half kilometer to go. The great thing about the navigation system was that not only did it tell them where to go, it told them how to get back to the lunar module in the shortest possible way. Right. It gave them a straight line heading so that if they did get into trouble, they had a way to bail out quickly. Well, by the time they got to Apollo 17, they were uh, they were assured this worked well enough where they actually drove five miles away 
from the lunar module, which I guess is probably still a record from being how far you can get from home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. To this day, that is the second drive that uh, Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt took on Apollo 17 across the taurus Litro Valley. <laughs> was both amazing and, uh, to my mind, pretty terrifying, uh, you know, because these guys got in the rover and they drove across an undulating plain a couple of miles across that, and they climbed a pretty steeply sloping avalanche fan that came down from the side of a mountain. At the top of that, they crossed over the, the ridge of a fault that, that rose 250 feet from the valley floor. And then they rolled down the other side and stopped 4.72 miles away from their lander. Now, this is essentially a 1969 General Motors product. <laughs> you know, they built it with uh, Boeing. Boeing was the, the prime contractor, but General Motors designed them, designed all of the moving parts, and um, and had been working on it for for a decade. You know, before they got the contract. So General Motors brought the know-how to the job. And I, and I've owned two 1969 General Motors. <laughs> products, both Oldsmobiles, and if you were to ask me, well, Earl, would you trust your 69 Vista Cruiser uh, if you were, you know, if it were parked 4.72 miles away from your one-way home on, in a hostile other celestial body, mm -hmm. uh, would you trust it to get, get you back? You know, I, I'd take a while to think about it before I answered. Well, the rover set a distance record, and apparently in the hands of John Young on Apollo 16, it set the extraterrestrial off-road racing record. He went pedal the metal and I guess hit that lightning fast speed of 10 miles an hour, which, which nevertheless had mission control nervous. <laughs> yes, it did. The guy riding shotgun with John Young was Charlie Duke, who had been urging him throughout the mission, come on, let's open it up, you know, let, let this moose run, as he kept saying, and, and, and Young had been very reluctant to do it. But on the, on, the, on the downhill run from the top of the crater, he did let it loose and hit, hit 10 miles an hour, a, a speed record that was then eclipsed by Gene Cernan on Apollo 17. He hit like 11 and a half. So it didn't last long, but <laughs> stood for a while. Now, I guess you got a chance to talk to Charlie Duke, who filmed John Young's Grand Prix on the moon. And I, I'm jealous because he does seem like quite an amusing fellow. The Apollo 16 crew, I think, had the most fun on the moon. If you read the transcripts and listen to the, the radio transmissions, I don't think there's any doubt that you, you, you have two guys there who were cut-ups and who knew how to have a good time and didn't sweat the little stuff. John Young famously, of course, brought the corned beef sandwich onto a, onto Gemini 3 and got in big trouble for that. They were just a couple of good old boys. A, a lot of fun to talk to Charlie Duke, who is uh, a big-hearted, fun-loving guy to this day. I think. When we watched that, the famous footage of, of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, he's talking back to Charlie Duke at, at Mission Control. That's right. When Neil said, you know, the Eagle has landed, it was Charlie Duke that said, Roger, we have you down, Eagle. Had a bunch of guys turning blue here. We're breathing again. <laughs> Thanks a lot. He was the Capcom or capsule communicator, the, the one guy through whom all messages at Mission Control were funneled to uh, communicate with the with the crew. Uh, you know, you did, you did mention... Um, one thing, and that's the Grand Prix. One of the great advances of the rover, too, was that it had a TV camera on its nose. And the TV camera was remotely controlled from Earth by an engineer at Mission Control named Ed Fendel. And what that meant was that in place of the stationary TV camera on a tripod outside the lunar module, which just captured the astronauts in the immediate vicinity of base camp and not doing much of anything interesting, we got to ride along 
on the crews of Apollos 15, 16, and 17, as they did amazing things in places that had no earthly equivalent. And the one drawback to this, this TV camera was that it relied on an antenna, and everybody remembers the antenna if you remember the rover because it was that giant inverted umbrella-looking thing on the front of the rover. Uh, it relied on an antenna that had to be precisely aimed at Earth, and so you couldn't use it while the rover was underway. And consequently, after Apollo 15 landed, we had a great idea of, of what it looked like when the astronauts were walking around at their various science stops, but no actual footage of the rover underway, uh, of it actually doing what rovers do, traveling across the countryside. And so on Apollo 16, Charlie Duke took the 16-millimeter movie camera that they had been supplied and filmed John Young as he opened it up back at base camp and went bouncing over the broken lunar terrain in this thing. And, and you get a good sense of just how crazy it was to drive, because with one-sixth gravity, often there were two or more wheels of this thing off the ground. <laughs> They'd hit a bump, and the front end would come up, and it would just kind of hang there for a while. <laughs> it wouldn't come down right away. And so um, when Jim Irwin described it as, as being a lot like being in a small boat in a choppy sea, you realize he, he was hitting it on the nose. Well, you got a photo of, that, of the Grand Prix in your book, and it's a lot of, I'm not sure whether they're black and white photos or just look like black and white photos taken on the moon. They are, they're quite stunning. I, I do hope in future editions of this book, Earl, that you're just going to bombard the reader with these color plates because this stuff is it's just breathtaking. Yeah, the, the, the color photography is pretty amazing. And, and you're right. I mean, one of, one of the disadvantages is the moon is completely monochromatic. So you don't realize it's a color picture unless there's a shoulder patch or something visible or the rovers in the picture with the, in the gold foil around the TV camera and the big gold uh, high-gain antenna. Considering that these pictures were taken you know, 50 years ago on standard color film, they're jaw-dropping in their resolution and their, the way they pop on the page. And if we're going to talk about uh, photographs on the moon, I, people can also, we should stress, if they want to check out some of the actual photos from the lunar orbiter that shows that sort of confirms the diagrams you have in the book of where they where they passed. You can see the you can see the footprints and you can see the the actual tracks of the rover in the lunar soil, which is really something. That footage of the rover blasting along shows this trail of dust that, that really puts a rooster tail on Earth kind of to shame. It's being blasted all over the place. And I think we have to mention the fact they broke the fenders on, on the last two two landings and had to, like, improvise a fix. They did. On Apollo 16, John Young accidentally broke the right rear fender on the rover, and, and that might not seem like a big deal, except that the top several inches of the lunar surface is is a powdery fine dust. That it's so fine that if you were to get some on your sleeve and try to brush it off, it would smear. But it's also really gritty, and so if it gets inside machinery, it'll seize it up right away. More problematically, it's dark. You know, we look at the moon, it looks silvery, it looks light. But on the surface, you pick up that, that lunar regolith, that dust, and it's almost black. And so if you do sling dust onto the electronics of the rover, that dust will absorb heat, and you'll overheat the rover, and it'll conk out maybe miles away from, from the lunar module. So fixing that fender was a big deal. Now, in Apollo 16, they, they didn't fix it, and they got completely covered with dust, and they just cleaned off the dust at every stop. But it did limit how fast they could go. The faster they went, the more dust it swung. On Apollo 17, Gene Cernan broke off the same fender <laughs> even before they'd made their first drive. He knew full well how that dust had affected John Young and, and Charlie Duke. So 
uh, you know, he told Houston, "We've got a we've got a real problem here, and we've got to get this fixed. This is this is an emergency." And and so overnight, they managed to put the the broken fender back on just for that first stage, real short drive, with duct tape. But it was clear they they lost it before they you know that thing fell off even before they got back to the lunar module. So overnight, John Young led an effort in Houston to to come up with a with a fix, and they devised one using four maps and a bunch of duct tape and two clamps from inside the lunar module, and it looked awful, but it worked. The proof was <laughs> that they covered 22 miles on the lunar surface in Apollo 17. Wow. Well, your book documents how research in the rovers originally favored six-wheeled vehicles. That was not going to work out so well for an astronaut's car. But we do have rovers on Mars and the Moon that have worked spectacularly well with, with six wheels. And so I guess it would seem that the R&D that you document from the 50s and 60s was put to good use. It was. You know, you'd be hard-pressed to draw a direct lineage between the lunar rover and the Mars rovers. But if you go back a few years to the early work that Becker and Pavlix were doing into the six-wheeled rovers. And by the way, the only reason they didn't go with a six-wheeled rover in Apollo is they couldn't figure out a way to get it to fit inside the lunar module. Uh-huh. They very much preferred a six six-wheel rover, which was far more far more capable. Becker and Pavlix's models used a flexible frame so that no matter how crazy the train was, all of those six wheels would have their feet on the ground all the time. And it gave it a billy goat kind of, you know, just a, a sure-footedness. What the Jet Propulsion Laboratory did in developing the Mars rovers is take that idea, come up with a way to keep all six wheels on the ground all the time, but they devised a, a an end run so that they wouldn't have to use any you know elastic frame for the thing. And what they developed was a suspension that took the wheels completely off the body of the vehicle and, and on, put it on a separate framework called a rocker bogey suspension. It emulates very closely what Becker and Pavlix were doing with a flexible frame in the early 1960s, but it does it with no elastic parts at all. I can't resist adding that China has a rover on Mars and a couple, of, I think, on the moon. And uh, I'm guessing well, the Chinese kind of saved a lot of dough from their part on rover development. <laughs> no comment, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm betting you're right. Well, as NASA's talking now in 2022 about going back to the moon, I, I'm sort of amused to see those Werner von Braun-type pressurized vehicles again being talked about, and they're shown in artist conceptions, comfortably carrying crews of settlers around on the moon. So it's, it's like 1955 all over again, in a way. Well, they never really went away. You know, the, in the first half of Apollo, all through the, the early 60s, the expectation was that the rivers we sent would be these big, huge, hulking, tank-like vehicles that would hold a bunch of astronauts and, and uh, you know, they'd be both shelter and transportation. You'd live in the thing for a couple of weeks. And it was only the declining NASA budget that trimmed down those those ambitions because these rovers were so big they would have required their own Saturn V to get to the moon. And it became clear that NASA didn't have the money to send two rockets up on each mission. But all through the, you know, the 80s and 90s as NASA dreamed about future lunar programs, you know, the artist sketches of what the vehicles in those programs might look like tended towards the big and pressurized and not a great departure from what Von Brown forecast in 1952. That idea has has colored thinking for 70 years now. You got a chance to talk to a lot of people involved in the whole Apollo program, etc. Did you get a sense from them? Are, are they Are they excited about the prospect of finally going back? Oh, I think so, yeah. 
I think there's great wistfulness and melancholy even over the fact that we haven't been back you know, in 50 years. No one saw that coming. If you had talked to anyone at the Marshall Space Flight Center in, the, in 1972 about when we'd be up there again, and this went for Von Braun as well, all of them would have said, yeah, you know, we'll get past these budget woes and we'll put it back together. We'll be back with something bigger and better. You know, that was the original plan. Apollo was going to be the first chapter in a long lunar campaign. So it was, uh, it's been a bit of a shock and a disappointment to them, I think, that that, that did not prove to be the case. Well, final question, Earl. Uh, you, you talked to a lot of people about how we got to drive on the moon. You researched some of the sites that were associated with that effort. Uh do you have a favorite episode among among your research adventures? I think that the, my favorite day in the reporting of the book was a day I spent in outside of Flagstaff, Arizona, in a volcanic crater uh, cinder field. There's a lake of cinders thrown up by a volcano a thousand years ago. And uh, in the late 60s, the U.S. Geological Survey, which helped NASA develop a lot of the procedures for that the astronauts would use in getting around on the moon and collecting samples, they created an exact duplicate of a piece of the Sea of Tranquility in one of these cinder lakes. They used uh, fertilizer explosives to, to blow craters that exactly <laughs> matched overhead pictures of this one one piece of lunar surface. So I went out there with the, the former head of the astrogeology branch of the USGS, a guy named Laszlo Keste, and he was able to explain what it was that I was looking at. And what I was looking at was this eerie moon on earth you're in a volcanic field so it's pretty otherworldly to begin with but then you've got these craters that are still there 50 years after the fact eroded certainly you know filled in their bottoms filled in somewhat but still you know that they are exactly where their lunar equivalent would have them be and it's uh it was it was really exciting and inspirational to be out there you know, before we end this today, I can't, I cannot resist mentioning the name of, of of Gene Shoemaker. I think we made passing reference to him, but I remember as a boy when they were doing the first the hard landings on the moon, and then then the soft landings on the moon. He would come on to explain to the public uh, uh, what was going on, and I, I just thought it was very educational and very inspirational. Yeah, and he was the head of that astrogeology effort at the USGS. He founded it, in fact and led it all through Apollo. Uh, super smart guy, wanted to be an astronaut himself. He had a medical condition that prevented that, but just a, a real font of support and brains for the for the space program. And the guy kept saying, those things are impact craters. People kept saying, oh, there's volcanoes. No, they're impact craters. Yeah, well, it's pretty, pretty crazy that it took Gene Shoemaker to finally prove that Meteor Crater in Arizona is a meteor crater, you know, and not a, not a volcanic one. But so it was. He was a smart guy. We've been speaking with author Earl Swift. His new book, Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Move Landings, is a fascinating look at the astronaut-carrying vehicles that expanded American exploration of the surface of the moon. Earl, thank you so much for speaking with us. Doug, thank you for having me. Great questions. Really appreciate it. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. We could walk forever, walking on the moon.